Hi, everybody. I'm here with Robert Phoenix today for this summer's Astro Fix, summer of 2019. And the real highlight is going to be another total solar eclipse, which has not happened in a couple of years. And these are always very potent times. So without further ado, let's go to Robert. Robert, welcome as always. Hey, Regina. Great to be back with you as always. Happy, uh, happy summertime and happy, happy, uh, happy solstice coming up. And we got a really interesting eclipse ahead of us with some also some uh, other interesting aspects and can't wait to get into it with you. Oh yeah, we're going to get into it. I, you, as soon as you said that happy summertime, I'm hearing that song summertime and the living is easy. And I'm thinking, no, the living ain't easy for people right now. <laughs> right. Summertime, yeah. And there is still that grace of summer with the fruit trees bearing and people lying in the sun, you know, something that's worthy of spending time in and worshiping just a little bit. So anyway, let's go into the eclipse first off, and then it's going to lead us into some themes that are really quite potent and interesting. Yeah, this is a really interesting eclipse. It's happening on the 2nd of July, which is, of course, right around the uh, the birthday uh, of this country, July 4th, United States. And uh, the fascinating thing about this eclipse is that not just because it's happening on the 2nd of July, but because where certain planets and where the true node is aligning and where the star Sirius is also going to be. Now, most people who know a smidgen about astrology and, and the historical roots of this country know that the reason why they chose this date, July 4th, is that that's when heliacal Sirius rises in the sky before the sun. Now, Sirius and our sun have a binary relationship, that they're part of a larger kind of galactic grid, and that the two stars actually work in concert with one another. Can I say something right here, Robert? That's not something that was commonly accepted. And then Walter Cruttenden, who is a more or less an amateur, very high-level amateur astrophysicist, really started putting a lot of research into it and has done a couple documentaries on it. And it starts making sense when you look into the notion that Sirius is considered the brown dwarf star, the, the companion to the sun. They rotate around each other. And That's if right. this is the case, then people need to start taking Sirius seriously, right? Right, absolutely. And, ex- and it expands the notion of our solar system. Yes. That our solar system just doesn't end at Pluto, which was declassified as a planet and kind of you know brought back into the family for a little bit. Uh, that our solar system actually extends all the way out to Sirius and then the, the stars, the, uh, the group of stars around Sirius, Sirius B as well. And the ancients always took Sirius very seriously. I mean, a lot of their structures, we just saw this in Sardinia with Freddie Silva, were aligned to the sun and or Sirius. So historically, the importance of Sirius and its impact on our planet and our living systems was always known. It wasn't lost until modern times came, really. Yeah, Sirius was venerated, obviously, by the Egyptians. Yes. Because when Sirius rose they knew that that's when the Nile would begin to flood. And that's when they could begin their, their crop cycle or their crop season. And that was, that was actually seen as being sort of the start of the year, believe it or not, uh, was the heliacal rising of Sirius. And, and, of course, the goddess 
that was associated with Sirius was, was Isis. And in fact, the, the Egyptians did not call Sirius Sirius, they called it Sophus, right? That was the name of that was the name of Sirius. So it's a really important um, star as it relates to the mythologies of this planet as a calendrical marker for this planet. And it plays a role in this eclipse that's coming up. The other thing that I that I thought was really interesting about Sirius in terms of his kind of cross-cultural import is that the Hopis also recognize Sirius. Yes. They called Sirius the Blue Kachina. And that at a certain point in time, the, the rising of the Blue Kachina would herald the beginning of the fifth world. And theoretically, some people think that we're already in the fifth world. There are others that think we're still in the fourth world. And these worlds are basically augmented by periods and cycles of destruction. And they also kind of correlate with the evolution in the Hopi world, the Hopi cosmology, slightly connected to the Navajos and the Pueblo, that we started off as insects and eventually go through these evolutionary cycles as we move from one world to the next. So what's interesting about this particular eclipse is the fact that we have the true node, which is in Cancer. That's going to be a part of the eclipse story, obviously. Uh, we have the new moon in Cancer. And Sirius, as I look at it here on the chart for the eclipse, uh, Sirius rising is, is just ahead of the U.S. sun, which puts it about two days ahead of the, uh, the natal Sirius, which took place on July 4th. So we have this conglomeration of Cancerian planets. And, of course, Sirius being the dog star of the Blue Kachina, and we have the true node there. So what, is this, what does this symbolize? Well, to me, it symbolizes that, number one, we're dealing with Cancerian energy, which is very feminine energy. But it's not feminine energy that's solely feminine. If you look at the sign of Cancer, you'll see the yin and the yang. and It's, you know, it's the masculine and the feminine trying to balance itself out. So we have this rising of the feminine with Sirius. And I'm not necessarily talking about like sort of the, this notion of the divine feminine. It's the qualities of the feminine that we have in all of us because we're both. We're both masculine. We're both feminine. And to me, with this eclipse, it's, it's the feminine aspect or the feminine principle rising and trying to achieve some kind of balanced interchange with the masculine. It's actually, I think, a really interesting energy. Now, on the other side, of course, We've got Saturn, the South Node, and Pluto, and, and they're all the sign of Capricorn. And Capricorn is representative of Saturn. It's representative of time, structure. It's representative of discipline. You know, Saturn, Capricorn, the Black Sun, it's, it's really kind of this rise of verticality in Western civilization. On the other side, we have Cancer, which tends to be more feminine, more, more agronomical, Kind of, kind of less urban. So we have these energies now that are trying to work themselves out. It sounds like it's it's kind of the classical clash between the classical um, archetypes of feminine and masculine playing out at this time. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 I would say that what we're trying to do is we're trying to work through like mm-hmm. like this version of false masculinity, yes. right? And even this version of false femininity. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, it's getting played out in a very interesting social and, in a a lot of ways, um, controversial way with the debate around abortion. 
and, and about life and when life begins and when life doesn't begin. Does it begin at a heartbeat? Is it just an appendage of the mother? Is there a divine spark? And it, obviously, there's a lot of sturm and drong around this. And there, there, you can see this getting played out now with, with the nodes because when we get into that nodal corridor with the true node in Cancer, we're talking about femininity. We're talking about maternity. We're talking about motherhood. We're talking about this kind of you know gestation um, factor, life, which is which is you know born out of a seed, right? And on the other side, we have Capricorn, which wants to basically you know dictate, regulate, uh, adjudicate these kinds of processes. So it gets down into you know who has the right does. Does a woman have a right to her body? I mean, obviously that's been ruled, but are there other inalienable rights like the right of the unborn child? And it's all getting played out right now. And one of the things that we're seeing is, you know, this clash between the states and, and, and the ideology and, and the voting. And, 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 and I think it's a really interesting and important kind of dialogue to have and and, and 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 I think it's a long time coming. I agree with you. And it seems to me that that would be now this is very America centric what we're talking about right now because of the lineup with the American natal chart. But also we're going to expand out into the Americas in just a moment because South America plays large in this story. But in the the part we were just speaking about in the American chart and in the Cancerian effect, this is also playing out in politics with the rise of so many kind of female rising stars in the political world right now. Wouldn't it not be? Well, certainly they've got a, they've got a place at the table, yeah. right? I mean, more than ever, whether you like them or not, whether you agree with them or not, They've got a place, probably the one that has that kind of aligns in some ways with this sort of alignment with the, the true note in Cancer and the south note in Capricorn, ironically, is Elizabeth Warren, who is a Cancer. That's her sun sign. I think she's a zero degrees Cancer sun with Uranus sun conjunction, which makes her very unusual. You know, we have another Uranus sun person that we've been talking about frequently over the last two years, and that's, that's Donald Trump. His son is in the sign of Gemini, conjunct Uranus in the sign of Gemini. So um, Elizabeth Warren has a little bit of that going on. She's, you know, kind of unusual, unpredictable. You know, some of her uh, liaisons with her past are a little bit sketchy, right? So she's she's kind of goofy. Like, I don't know if you saw that, that, that video where she's at home and she's cracking the beer and everything. And yeah. She, yeah. It, it was what, something that really was kind of out of character for who she really is. I think trying to be identifiable with the masses, like the one George Bush, the guy everyone wanted to drink, quote, beer with before he was elected. It seems like she was trying to do a little bit of that, and she doesn't need to. She has a very good, solid brain, a good, solid understanding of ac economics and so forth. But it was almost like a pandering thing. Is that part of that trait you're talking about? In it's part family? of the Sun Uranus conjunction, and I would actually encourage her to do more of that. Really? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think what she's, I, here's what I think, you know, her nickname is Looney Liz or whatever. I mean, she's a cancer, right? So the lunar thing actually applies. Mm -hmm. And I would actually encourage her to actually get more out there, to have more goofy moments, to have more unpredictability, 
That would fit the times astrologically and actually boost her more because she's, are you saying she have, have it's, a her, it's a way for her to stand out. There are 20 people that are running for president and you know, what are you going to do? Are you just going to sort of rubber stamp and check the socialist box right. like everybody else seems to be doing because that's playing to the masses. I mean, if she's going to stand out, she's going to be apart from the crowd and actually follow her chart. She needs to go into that sun Uranus conjunction and be more unpredictable Cancer, by and large, tends to be a conservative sign. It is, you know, Gemini is not that conservative. Gemini is willing to take risks. Yeah. But cancer does not always take risks. As, you know, with, with the true note in cancer, I would encourage her to take more risks, to be more out there, to take stances or have public policy that are going to be different than the group that she's actually trying well, to compete with. Yeah, I mean, even if it's just a matter of shaping perception, it's part of the game of the political game. But the interesting thing is, of these women, of this Cancerian effect and its support of feminine in general, it sounds like Elizabeth Warren's chart is the most aligned with this configuration right now. From what I, I would say, that would be that would be yes, yes, because it kind of falls in alignment with the nodes. Okay, so yeah, then, okay, so let's let's continue on from there. That was just a little diversion. Yeah. Let's talk about these eclipses because there's another one coming on the heels of it that's going to set things up a little bit later. So let's get into the second eclipse. Well, okay, before we get into the second eclipse, okay. one of the things I did want to point out was with this eclipse, it's going to be visible in South America, right mm -hmm. through Argentina, Chile, you know, the southern part of South America almost sweeping through Antarctica. And the lunar eclipse, which follows this uh, on the 16th, also goes through that area as well. So the eclipses generally work in tandem. So what we'll see here with the solar eclipse is really a heavy, heavy dose of cancer, right? This is going to be the – excuse me. So the binary equivalent of that – would be the lunar eclipse, which would be in the sign of Capricorn. Now, that eclipse sets us up for, again, this next, this next solar eclipse, which takes place on December 26th uh, at the end of this year. And that's, that's, that's going to be a major eclipse because, number one, we're dealing with uh, winter solstice energies. That's number one. Number two, I think there are at least five planets in the sign of Capricorn during that time including the onset of the Saturn-Pluto conjunction, which, which takes place in January, February of 2020. And so what we're going to see with the lunar eclipse taking place on the 16th, we'll have some insight. We'll have some, some glimmer as to what we can expect in December. And I would assume that when we deal with that lunar eclipse, that, you know, because the moon is going to be in Capricorn and, you know, it's in its detriment in Capricorn. So what, I think what we're going to see during this time with the lunar eclipse is the beginning of like cuts, rollbacks. We might see some, some blowback on the tariff stuff. You know, we could see, begin to see the ripple effect of the economy or some economic downturn as, as early as this, this lunar eclipse taking place on the 16th. That's a hard eclipse yeah. because we're dealing with the moon in Capricorn, which which is kind of unrelenting, right? This is like the, you know, Capricorn represents corporate structures and CEOs, and they can, it, it's a ruthless game. You've got, right. you've got, you've got to cut people loose 
you've got a rollback. You've, you know, there are things that happen in corporate America or corporate Earth that are not always pleasant. And this moon, this eclipse moon, will demonstrate some of that. So it's not it's not a real happy or pleasant eclipse with the moon. Now, when is that eclipse occurring, the lunar eclipse? Yeah, that's the 16th of July. Of July. So, so it's so, simultaneous, really. Um, it's just following the, the solar eclipse. Right, and, and eclipses will do this because of where the nodes are. Mm-hmm. So you'll get a, a, a solar eclipse on a new moon, and then you'll get a lunar eclipse on the full moon. That's pretty much how it works. Okay, so let's talk about how South America starts playing into this because we were talking off camera uh, prepping for this and you were saying that you think that South America is going to become an increasingly important player on the world stage economically and otherwise. Let's talk about that for a moment because both these eclipses that are coming up, including the one in December, are apparently visible in South America, right? Yeah, that's correct. And so one of the things that's interesting, the number of people have and it kind of dovetails with some of my own research that that kind of the big transition year of the plan is 2025 you know, that we go through a number of very significant changes over the course of the next what uh, six six years and several be, people have said that including seers and sayers so it does seem 2025 is important yes right and apparently during that time the South America, shows up numerologically to be a major player right around that time. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because even though South America has had a fair amount of its har- of resources harvested, it's still by and large a fairly undeve- undeveloped country, uh, continent. Uh, you just take Brazil, for example. I mean, there are miles and miles and miles of Brazil that is untapped and not necessarily unexplored in a sense because of the highway system. There's no real, you know, major highway system that connects all of Brazil with all its various locales. So that's just one country. It's massive. So there are all these minerals that are deposited in South America. So South America is going to play a big role. And people talk about the solar minimum, right, which is the dimming of, of the light. And we're actually going to be going through a cooling process versus a, 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 a heating process or warming process. And if that's the case, then the southern hemispheres are going to play an even larger role because that's where the heat, the light, the growth is going to be generated. And will they maintain their, their, their tropic climate you know, during a time like this? The answer to that is probably no, but it'll be warmer than other parts of theoretically the northern hemisphere. And so I think South America is going to play a very significant role. Obviously, the Chinese are trying to get their claws into South America. Uh, and the United States, of course, is trying to get their claws into South America and have been for, you know, it's not just the United States. I mean, these are corporations, right? These are corporations that are acting as countries and vice versa. Indeed. Well, and as far as I'm concerned, as long as we see yet another resurgence of Argentine tango, I'm good with it all. <laughs> you got to love that, man, <laughs> right? Central side to it, too, right? So oh, absolutely. let's continue a bit from, from the South American um, uh, f- configuration astrologically into Mercury and retrograde. That's where we're going to go next once we're wrapped on South America. Yeah, I just want to say one more thing about this eclipse which I think is really important. See, eclipse energies can happen about a week and a half and before and a week and a half after mm-hmm. the eclipse. Uh, so just keep that in mind. We're dealing with about a three-week stretch here. The other thing, especially with this solar eclipse, 
is I think it's going to be really important for people to be able to tap in to this energy and be able to sharpen their skills around growing and building and cooking and mending and to, and to try to branch out and make connections with other people in their general vicinity, their family, their community. This eclipse, I think, will hopefully bring that up and, and really kind of sound the bell to, to the importance around this. So just, just, I like that. just throw that out there. Um, Mercury retrograde, you know, Mercury retrograde is always a very interesting period. And this is going to happen on July 8th. So it's kind of splitting both of these eclipses. So we have the eclipse on the 2nd, and then we have the lunar solar eclipse on the 2nd, and the lunar eclipse on the 16th. And then right in the middle, we get Mercury retrograde. It goes, it goes retrograde at Leo, 4 degrees. So right now, as you and I are talking, we're already in the shadow of Mercury retrograde. And then it goes direct on the 1st of August, which is my dearly deceased father's birthday, and then uh, out of the shadow on the 14th. So we're finally out of this, you know, Mercury retrograde phase on the 14th of August. So when we get into Mercury retrograde, of course, you know, the standard, the usual applies. I really advocate that you don't sign any contracts. Like that's a big thing during a Mercury retrograde. I don't care what science in, you want to you want to stay away from signing contracts. You can repair certain things during the Mercury retrograde. That's not a bad thing to do. May I ask something? Yeah. When you're making all of your travel arrangements while Mercury's in retrograde, you could have a surprise or two at the other end when you, before you board the plane. <laughs> oh, no doubt. No doubt. Like, if you want to make travel arrangements, even, even though we're in a shadow of Mercury retrograde, I think it's a good time to do it. I think it's okay. You can, you can still deal with it now. But the closer we get to July 8th, especially when Mercury begins to station a couple of days before, you really want to be... I think very clear about, you know, things, you know, going wrong or at least being able to deal with some chaos. Miscommunication, all that sort of thing. But what's interesting when we were prepping for this, we got into some of the shadow side of what happens during this Mercury and retrograde. And I think it's really worth pointing out because um, it's coming to our attention on a lot of levels, including even in mainstream media. And this is the subject of, um, again, um, relations between people, and we're talking about a really dark facet, which goes into pedophilia, for example. And you said that it's known by another name now, a politically quote correct. If there's, you can even ever call it that. It's not correct. It's an excuse called age gap love. Yeah. So, so Mercury, Mercury's wow. gonna be, yeah, Mercury's going to be the sign of Leo, and Leo represents children. It's a sign that represents children, youth, activity, sport, also actors and performance. So we're looking at children, babies, right? Um, abortion will come into the discussion as well. Uh, actors, Hollywood, pedophilia, child love, and what you were talking about is age gap love. And there's a new uh, series that the BBC is running, and I think it's being rebroadcast on Netflix, and that's the name of the series. It's called Age Gap Love, where essentially middle-aged men in their 40s are having relationships with girls, and and relationships that are not just parental, they're, they're actual sexually intimate relationships, in some cases actually resulting in marriage. 
So some of the cases follow men who are around 44, 45, older, and then they're essentially um, seducing 14, 15, 16-year-old girls and then, then marrying them. And, and it's it, the, the, so what's creepy about this, right, is that we're not calling it for what it is. We're, not, call, we're not calling it pedophilia. Well, is it being put in a favorable light or an acceptable light in some way? I don't think it's necessarily favorable, but it's also not necessarily denouncing it either. It's just right? conditioning people as to the reality of it. It's, so, so in my estimation, what it's doing in what we're all being uh, sort of programmed to receive is that if we redefine the definition of what pedophilia is by simply by the language and, and the, and the language deconstructionists love this stuff that, you know, we now begin to redefine the actual act or the state of, of that, that level of intercourse. Cause when we say pedophilia, obviously it's going to bring up images in people's minds and rightly so of this really kind of lurid, creepy, act of robbing the innocence of a child and actually it being you know slightly vampiric but when you say age gap love what the hell does that mean what it means is that well there's a gap between my age and her age but we still love each other and at the end of the day right you're gonna we're gonna get this this phrase well you know it's all about love only love counts only love matters it doesn't really matter what the age is and so what we're what we're seeing here at least in my estimation is that we're, we're seeing this documentary and other, other examples that reflect this documentary that essentially cast this age gap love in, 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 a, in, a, in a weirdly contorted heterosexual kind of way, right? It looks heterosexual. It looks on some level like, okay, well, he's a man. She's a girl. It kind of fits this model. She's you know, she's not quite 18, but she's also not 9 or 10. So it fits into this area where people's minds kind of think about it. Well, you know, maybe this is sort of acceptable. Maybe some cultures, which you and I talked about, saw this as being acceptable at a certain point in time. But then what always happens here is once the, the, the sort of the, the managers of these programs get their foot in the door, they begin to tweak the program. So what starts off as, you know, people going, I don't know, yeah, that's pretty weird. He is 15, she is, you know, then all of a sudden it starts going backwards. And from 15, 16, now we're talking about 11, 10, 9, 8. And now we're really that's into changing. That, that's what I was going to ask you next. It's a conditioning, societal conditioning. It is a total conditioning. And then it goes into... It goes into, as you say, pedophilia with children and then same-sex pedophilia as well. And then you're into the whole enchilada, which, um, you know, many people believe the power elite structure at its core has a lot of, uh, there are a lot of implications regarding sexual behavior with minors, even in terms of blackmail and so forth, to continue upholding the structure, the fabric of the elite structure. And I would certainly say it extends far beyond the, the elite alone. But uh, the more you dig into that, you, the more you see this is part of that story of the power structure is secrets surrounding uh, pedophilia. 
Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, if you really, really dig down into this stuff, yeah, uh, like there's a website uh, out of England called Anerfan, and it's run by this uh, this gal, and she goes down the the English pedophilia rabbit hole, and yes. it'll it blow it'll blow your mind as to who's involved. Yeah, sick stuff. And, and, David, and how I deep really it is. Call, David, I called it on a lot of that. I mean, he put himself out on a limb talking about very high profile people. All of it has been borne out. Um, and so you can, that's only scratching the surface. I can't, I haven't seen what you're talking about. So what is it, what is it called again? Yeah. So the website is called Anerfan, A-A-N-I-R-F-A-N. It's an unusual name. And, I won't uh, go there, but just if other people want to check this out, these aren't rumors. These aren't urban legends. This is fact. No, th- this is a researcher, by the way, yeah. who does painstaking research into who these people are and their connections. And Jimmy Savile is sort of at the center of that. Absolutely. Very Edward Heath as well. Edward Heath. And it, they even go as far back as to look at Churchill and uh, Field Marshal Montgomery, mm-hmm. who was you know appointed by... Uh, Churchill to take over the uh, North African front and take on Rommel. You know, he's also indicted. It's a really very, very dark web. And it's been around for a really long time. And the the whole thing with with children, obviously, is that they're getting into not just the field of their innocence, they're also getting into their biology. And they're getting into things that are extremely dark, like adrenochrome and you know, these are these are phrases now that are are not unknown to a lot of people. They're becoming more and more a part of our our lexicon and our language. Well, during Mercury retrograde in Leo, there can be a lot of reexamination around some of this stuff. And I'm not talking about examination that basically makes it um, uh, you know acceptable to the norm, but examination around what's really going on with kids, what's really going on with Hollywood, what's really going on with our politicians, and even sports will come into play around this. Now, in terms of Mercury retrograde for each and every one of us, well, Mercury's in its detriment in Leo, so it's not always the best place for it, but I think it also gets it gets into this kind of wheelhouse for the individual, like, is anybody having any fun anymore? Like, are we really enjoying ourselves? Are we recreating? Are we are, are we finding new things to kind of, you know, grab our attention because Leo does rule hobbies and pastimes. So Mercury Leo retrograde can get us to think about some of the things that we used to do or we used to love or that we really used to enjoy. And maybe it'd be really good to revisit them so we can bring them back into our lives. And that's I think, yeah, that's interesting because I'm, I'm just noticing that through, myself and my own feelings and observations, just having come back from Sardinia a few days ago and noticing how beautiful um, the culture felt because it was reminiscent, again, as you say, of things past, where people sat down and took hours at night to have, you know, wine and pizza and the kids out running around, families together in the piazza, no cell phones on the table. It was absolutely beautiful just to just in terms of connecting with each other. And while I joked about Argentine tango a bit ago, I was on uh, Dr. Paolo's show this morning. Um, she vo- she's on Voice America. 
and we were talking about the healing implications of Argentine tango and both of us danced tango and just flared up. Let's take this on again, you know, I'm personally resonating with what you're saying about finding these, this gentleness, this joy in these pastimes. And it's great if this is, if this mercury and retrograde is going to encourage that energetically in us. Yeah, it will, it will go retrograde back into cancer, by the way. And cancer, when, you know, cancer is looking backwards. Cancer tends to be sentimental. Cancer tends to be connected really to our families and our childhood. So it starts off in Leo, and we're thinking about things that we used to love. And it goes back into cancer. So we're revisiting our families. We're revisiting mm-hmm. uh, the context of what it was like to grow up. And some people have some 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 dark memories around that stuff and some people have decent memories and for a lot of us it's quite mixed but and, to create connection sounds like that's really key just yeah. in creating genuine connection with one another whether we're friends whether we're families business colleagues to find some beauty and joy in these relationships again take time acknowledge each other just talk to each other yeah, I mean, look, we we have had the, you know two years worth of intense conflict, psychic conflict in this country, right? And some of that psychic conflict has spread into other parts of Europe as well, because it seems like there's 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 a real struggle going on, right? In terms of ideologies, some of which I think is valid, some of which I think is pumped up and inflated, so that people can be divided and conquered more easily. You got to separate the wheat from the tares there, but so. But I think what's really important is that through this time, things have gotten pretty intense, and and it's not always easy to relate to family members. Families have been atomized by a lot of this stuff, and it's not always easy to go out and say, you know what, I'm going to have a a hike in nature, or, or I'm going to take up a hobby, or I'm going to do something that brings a little more joy into my life. Because it all feels so serious and intense, and every single day seems to be another day on the line in terms of either the presidency or you know trying to find this kernel of truth. And, and even now, I mean, it's getting quite serious on YouTube. YouTube is basically just blowing channels, you know, off of YouTube. That's that's a recent development. We can talk about that. So yeah. some of these things are very real. But this retrograde Mercury, I think, is important because if we lose touch with things that bring us joy or give us some degree of satisfaction, then we're really, you know, adrift without a rudder. And all we're doing is we're involved in sort of the trenches of ideological survival. And I and I think that that's not always a place that, that a lot of us want to be. No, I totally agree with you on that one. And before we move on to Venus, <clears throat> there's another configuration, which is Chiron and Aries, which has some really weird stuff being introduced attached to it. A little bit of dark stuff again. So we'll, we'll trip through this and go to the, to the rest in a minute. Let's talk about it. Yeah, I think, I think Chiron and Aries is probably the most important aspect. Uh, that we can deal with or or at least wrap our heads around right now. So the last time Chiron was in Aries was around 1967, 1968. And in 1968, we saw the French Revolution. I mean, well, one version of it. There were riots going on in France. And of course, once Chiron returns to Aries, what do we see? We see the yellow vests in France. And so it's part of this chirotic cycle, which I think is fascinating. Um, That was also the beginning of the rise of feminism in the United States. 
1968. It was a time of revolution, Chiron and Aries. And Chiron is the wounded healer. It's, it's, a, it's a planetoid that sits between Saturn and Uranus. And it basically has 50-year cycles between when it goes into one sign and then reemerges in another sign. And it's based on, uh, it's based on the, uh, the centaur, Chiron, who was essentially the teacher and the healer for all the heroes of, of the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, his 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 uh, essentially stepfather was uh, or foster father was Apollo, and his foster mother was Artemis, and the two of them taught him all these wonderful things, these gifts of prophecy and poetry and music and healing and astrology, and he's the most evolved of all the centaurs. But what Chiron represents is you know a, a wound a personal societal or, or collective wound, depending upon where it is in the chart. So now we have it in Aries, and Aries is male energy. That's what Aries represents, male energy, masculine energy. Here comes Chiron coming in, and what are we dealing with now? We're dealing with some very interesting stuff around men and masculinity. So one of the things you and I talked about I'll start with the, I'll start, let's start with the negative and we'll go to the positive on this. Yeah. The weird, the weirdest kind of version of this Chiron and Aries manifestation that I, that I've run across is this movement, albeit it's not grand and on a global scale, but it's out there. They're called nullos, N-U-L-L-O-S. And essentially what these people are, I think they're very few in number, thank God, are men who have completely rejected their masculinity or their male energy because they're either so ashamed or distorted around it that they they uh, voluntarily cut off their genitalia. Okay, so this is this is a, a just a blatant aspect of the wounded male, yeah. so wounded that that he, they can't even embrace. The most basic aspects of their of their of their sex, right? right. And it's frightening. It's, it's absolutely frightening. frightening. It's very very sad that a person would be driven to this through ideology, really, and this kind of collective guilt and and shame and everything. This is the dark side of what's happened. On the flip side of feminism is the shaming of the masculine. Absolutely, Ab- absolutely. So, kind of taking it up. A notch, maybe not not as quite as dark, but still dark in my in my uh, perspective and opinion, is that recently there was a ruling that essentially stated that men could compete as women if they identified as women and were on some form of estrogen program. And so what that's led to is a number of men competing in female uh, competition, competition of women. Right, and I think everybody can, uh, that's kind of shocking because anyone can see the falsehood in that. If you essentially have a male musculature and you throw a little estrogen in it, it doesn't make it a fair race. That, no, not, not at all. Not at all. No, and these men are dominating. They're absolutely dominating. Well, of course they are, they're men. <laughs> yeah, right. And so and this gives you a kind of an insight into the, climate of political correctness, and just, in my estimation, how fascistic it can be. Uh, Martina Navratilova, who is one of the great icons of tennis, 
in general, let's take women's tennis out of it. She was a great tennis player. Right. And you're one of the first women to come out and say, Hey, look, I'm, I'm gay. And, you know, and I'm okay with it. And the world embraced Martina Navratilova. Martina Navratilova stood up for the women and said, I don't agree with this. I don't think men in transition should be allowed to compete as women. Well, she got, she got an earful and she had to, she had to walk that back. So this is somebody who's iconic, right? She's iconic. And yet, who's ever writing the script got into her in a way that she had to redress her position. And I think that that's frightening, to be honest. It is. With you. I mean, it's, it, this, this whole subject is taking advantage of the politics of sex. And when you're coming down to something as pure as physical competition, I don't think the two should be mixed. It's not, it's not honest. It's, it's not honest. No. no, you and I are in agreement around this. And, you know, if you were a father and, uh, or mother family, and you'd, let's say you invested a significant amount of time and energy and money, uh, into your, into your daughter's athletic career. Right. And then all of a sudden, uh, a, a, an impersonator, a chameleon comes along and obliterates everything that she's worked extremely hard for, right? And this is the this is where it gets really weird because we want to promote women as having as much of an equal footing as possible, right? So we want to promote this excellence. We want to promote this ability for girls to be able to excel and achieve. And then we come in, and then they come in, and they just put a hammer down. Right. And, and it's like everything that theoretically this group has been fighting for and advocating gets squashed in, in an instant by allowing this other group to come in and just crush everything. And it's like, wow, who's really writing the script here? Right. Yeah, this this is a really interesting turn. Um, so anyway, I think we both made our positions clear on that. Let's go into the positive end of uh, Chiron and Aries because there seem to be some hopefully genuine transformations taking place among some uh, pr- prominent male misogynists, <laughs> previously misogynistic men. And so let's take a look at what's happening there in a more kind of fair and decent way. Right. So again, what we're talking about, we have three, two different images of men that I've just sort of brought up here with the wounded male, right? We have the nullo male. We have the male who rejects his masculinity to the point where he can participate in a female sport and still dominate. Now, the third category are what I'm seeing as a trend of men who are kind of rehabilitating their spirits. And I think the most interesting aspect, or one of the most interesting examples of this guy by the name of Roosh V, and that's R-O-O-S-H-V, and he, about, I don't know, about three years ago, four years ago, he basically was part of this men going their own way movement, which is like, we're fed up with women. We feel screwed over by women. We're going to go our own way. We're going to throw out all the rules to hell with chivalry. You know, we're going to be just as ruthless as they are. We're going to screw. We're not going to be attached to it emotionally. And we're not going to apologize for it. So he became very popular in this community, in this group. And it was, it was sort of like he was on the verge of almost uh, embracing rape, 
on some level, right? There were the, these weird kinds of ideological links between what he was promoting and versions of rape. And he wasn't necessarily denying those things. So he was doing this tour and he was getting shut down. Like hotels wouldn't rent to him. Uh, there were people coming out when we were coming out, they were protesting, but online he had a very popular community and he's written a number of books like, um, you know, how to get laid during the daytime, daytime sex, places where you can go and have sex. So it gives you an idea around his mindset. Well, recently, he's had a 180-degree shift. He shut down pornography and any mentions of disrespectful relationships with women on his, on his forum, which is very popular. So he's coming and said, we're not talking about this anymore. We're not going down this path anymore. I'm interested in creating intimacy and family because he had apparently a come to Jesus moment when he was high on mushrooms and he realized something. He realized something deep and profound and he's done an about face. And it's I was really going to ask you if you thought it was maybe economically driven no. because he was being shut down in shows and all that, but you're saying, no, he actually had no. an epiphany. Which oh, is he had he had a big epiphany, and he could have done what he was doing and still be extremely popular. His website gets a lot of hits. Mm -hmm. uh, he's got a lot of followers on Twitter, so he's risked his he's risked his cash cow mm -hmm. by saying, "I don't want to be a part of this anymore," and he's embracing this idea of logos, which is starting to gain some traction on the internet vis-a-vis -vis E. Michael Jones. Now, another guy who's sort of aligned in this way is Owen Benjamin. And Owen sort of, he was, he was deeply embedded in Hollywood. He was a fairly popular comedian, spent a lot of time with Joe Rogan, wrote a lot of stuff. And I think it was like his latest, about two years ago, he was on Rogan's show. And one of the things that Rogan does is he, he ritualizes getting high. Right. Like, if you go on a show, you get high, you get drunk. And he did that. And I watched Owen do that. Now, Owen had a breakaway moment from Rogan and a breakaway moment from his own lifestyle. He quit Hollywood. He bought some land. He's raising goats. He's raising chickens. He's raising his family. He's got a wildly popular podcast. He's given up alcohol. And, and he's, he's basically turned away from the beast system. So these are two men. I love it. I love it. Deeply invested in a kind of lifestyle and they're moving away. They're what so what we're seeing now is we're seeing this reassemblage of masculinity. And and uh and Owen Benjamin is very politically incorrect on a lot of his podcasts. So if if you're a little bit squeamish about some of that stuff, I would say try to sit through that and get get to some of the points that I think are really salient. And look, you know, your people are known by their works. And if you are lucid and clear and sober and you're working towards this evolution of truth, then what more can we ask for out of people? Well, I, that is true. I think we have to become more nuanced thinkers. There is nobody that is a hundred percent this or that on the planet. And oftentimes it is hard to get past uh, you know, positions we may not agree with, even if it's one position we don't agree with, um, to be able to align with some of the more beautiful parts of an individual. 
I, I think nuance is probably the most needed thing on the planet right now because everything has been done to essentially beat nuance thinking out of us into black and white, choose your side scenarios. And as far as the way he's going on this, um, I happen to live in exactly that kind of environment all around me. I mean, I wake up to um, the most pathetic sounding donkey. I mean, donkeys always sound sad, the braying of donkeys. This one is the saddest sounding donkey. We wake up laughing because his heart breaks for this little donkey every morning. And birds and, and horses and everything around us is uh, there are goats across the street. There are every kind of farm animal around us. And watching these families that are moving into this area as the old farmers, the old people like my dad, have started dying off, um, these young families are coming in and these kids are being taught actual skills. They're living close to the land. Now, some of them are uh, fundamentalist families that go to some of the big mega churches down the road. But I have to say, even though I'm not really, I, I'm frightened by fundamentalism in general, I find these people to be just really nice people raising really good kids, you know, with good values, even if we don't agree on maybe some of the religious aspect of their philosophies, what I'm seeing them do with their kids and their lives is wholesome and good. And I'm very happy for them. And they're good neighbors. So again, nuance in our thinking, I think, is really important. And I'm really happy to hear some of these guys are getting back into the notion of wholesomeness. It's a word that's been lost. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think it's, you know, I think it's about time. Can't they get that donkey another donkey? Well, you know, the donkey has a donkey there. And there was oh. another donkey last year. This one is just sadder sounding than last year's donkey. There are two or three of them over there, actually. Oh. I don't know what he's braying on about. Maybe maybe he's just singing and has a bad voice. I don't understand what donkeys are saying. But. Maybe you could get one of your guests <laughs> who specialize in these things to help a donkey them. whisper. <laughs> donkey whisper, yeah, poor donkey. Yeah, I think it's, look, we went through this incredibly Dionysian experience of the 1960s and to some extent the 70s. And, and I've been thinking about this and what we were all looking for were shortcuts. We were all looking for, you know, whether it was uh, a drug or whether it was a sexual encounter or whether it was a weekend seminar. I think we were all looking for shortcuts to get there. That's a very good point. I think you're right. Yeah. And I think what people are realizing now is that uh, shortcuts have a price. They have a price attached to them. And that taking one's time and really sinking roots into their life can actually be more beneficial, um, certainly in the long run, but also to have more of an organic and sustained value versus trying to take the shortcut. And I, and I think that's kind of what we're wrapping our heads around now. I think we really are. And in fact, um, I have a book club for the patrons of my site. And the book coming up next week is uh, one of the books in the Anastasia series. And I find as I'm reconnecting, I read the original nine books probably a decade ago. I find as I'm reconnecting with them and rereading them right now, it's even more relevant than it was at the time I first read them. And even when they were written, because this is where we're searching to find this kind of connection in life again and this back to nature connection and connection with one another. And for whoever has not read those books, um, they're just a breath of fresh air in this regard. 
So you grew up in a time when there was a lot of paranoia. Um, there was a lot of Cold War um, fear and anxiety floating around. Cuban Missile Crisis. The bombs could drop at any moment. Do you think under your desk for drills? Yeah. Do you yeah. think that that back that backdrop of the imminence of the world ending kind of force people culturally to experience as much as possible. Do you think that had anything to do with it? I do. I do think that. And it was a period of time that was drenched in fear. Um, mm-hmm. I was raised in total fear, fear of the Soviet Union. And I wasn't, I mean, we did. We had our drills where you'd hide under your desk like a nuclear explosion is somehow going to be all, the effects are going to be altered by hiding under your desk at school. But I remember the Cuban Missile Crisis when we all went and watched it on our televisions at the time and just having, being riddled with this kind of fear that our lives might be near its end at such a tender young age. And so it's not surprising that, this period of time gave way to something where more instantaneous gratification and pleasure and such was at our fingertips. Absolutely. And there's, there's a, there, there's a recording to Jim Morrison, uh, this live concert. And he says, yeah, the whole shit house is going to go down in flames, but I'm going to get my kicks anyway. Right. And I think that was kind of a credo, for that time, it's like, well, if it's all going to go down, let's take some shortcuts. doesn't matter anyway, right? right? And right. I think it was kind of hardwired into that time. And now here we are, you know, the existential threat isn't really the nuclear threat anymore. It's a very different kind of threat. And I think people now have at least some space to think about, well, what if we went about this differently? What if we right. took our time and really tried to create something more organic and peaceful or different or more structured out of where we are. So it's just, it's just, a, it's just thoughts that I've been having over this kind of this dynamic that we're in. Well, I think they're, I think they're relevant. And because we've spent so much wonderful time talking about this, what we're going to do is kind of, let's just speed through a little bit Venus and cancer in July and what's happening there. And then a couple quick comments on the rest. Cause we've really kind of hit the big stuff and the importance of the main themes already. Yeah, so Venus is going to be in Cancer. Obviously, it is in Cancer you know, right around July. It's the time that it shows up. This time, uh, it's going to be in opposition with Saturn and Pluto. Uh, we had it last year also in opposition with Saturn. So the difference is, is that Saturn and Pluto are in different decans than they were last year. So the expression of Saturn and Pluto are a little bit different, and the expression of Venus is going to be a little bit different. But really what we're looking at here to some degree, is kind of an adjunct of the conversation we've been having. Saturn and Pluto, being in the signs of Capricorn, kind of represent these you know, massive, titanic, oligarchic structures that you know dominate our lives and our choices. Like summarily, YouTube just saying, we're done with these kinds of videos. I know. I've been worried about it myself. I mean, they could deem anything I have as politically incorrect and absolutely me off as well. Absolutely. And so... This is the shadow of that convergence, especially with the South Node in Capricorn. Venus in Cancer gets into this relationship or relationships we have with things that are Cancerian, our families, our feelings, the things that we care about. So we're having an opposition in July around this stuff. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens. I would not be surprised if we might see groups of people you know, gather together in public, maybe opposing 
um, some of the sort of top-down restrictions that I think are coming about. At the very least, internally, I think people will, will kind of go inside and ask, you know, where is the meaning, right? Where are we going to find something real? And if all the exits are closed, then how are we going to be able to communicate and share and all the things that we need to do together as a species? Because if we don't do it, we're cut off and we're isolated. We're all just screwed. Yeah. So this, this Venus and Cancer opposing Saturn and Pluto gives us an opportunity to look at our relationship with those entities and also with the things that are familiar in our lives and how we can either pull them closer together or make them more important. Yeah, so this whole period really seems like it's going to be over the summer and certainly through July about really standing tall for the value of relationships in our lives and developing them maybe more than we've taken the time to do in recent history. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. You know, I wanted to get back really quickly on this Mercury retrograde and Leo thing too, yeah. is that I think for people that have elements of estrangement with their relationship with their kids, this Mercury and Leo retrograde, whether it's kids or grandchildren, it would be a good time to reach out and try to try to mend some of those, um, some of some of those the, the, those those you know the the, the tears you know, in those relationships. So if you have some of that in your life, starting July 8th when Mercury does go retrograde in Leo, that might be a time for you if you want to, you know, try to resolve something or try to, you know, repair some of those relationships to go ahead and give it a shot. That's good information to have. I mean, I have a bit of that going in my own life, which has been the saddest thing in my entire life. And at the same time, I keep running into more and more people. As I said, I was on Dr. Paula's show this morning. She has the same thing going on in her life. I sat next to a woman in the airplane um, on the way over to Rome, and she has doubled down in her family, and she just doesn't know where it came from. This estrangement with children is now popping up everywhere around me. And it's leaving mothers and fathers totally perplexed because these are not abusive relationships that fostered it. So it's really good to know that, that we have a little window of time where we can all consider reaching out once again in our best possible way. I'm, I'm glad to hear that, Robert. Thank you. Yep. Any other final thoughts before we wrap it up for a summer of 2019? Yeah, just a couple of things. So we're going to Mars and Leo in July. So it's a lot of Leo energy over the summer. And it can be fun, it can be interesting, it can be playful. We're also dealing with ego with Mars and Leo. It's going to be going through Trump's 12th house, hidden enemies. Uh, so think of more drama in Trump land uh, and maybe uh, rooting out hidden enemies or more hidden enemies sort of making their, uh, making their mark uh, in the uh, social media and, uh, and mainstream media landscape. Jupiter's retrograde. In Sagittarius, it's a good good time to clear things out so you can expand and bring more into your life once Jupiter goes direct. So whether it's your beliefs, whether it's things inside of your house that you have to let go of, start to clear some stuff out, make more space in your life. And then all the other outer planets, uh, with the exception of Uranus, they're all retrograde over the summer. So we've got Neptune religion, drugs, water, Pluto, money, sex, credit, the underworld, Saturn, government, big business, Jupiter, all, they're all retrograde. So we're all re-examining our relationship to these institutions. And uh, it's going to be an interesting summer. 
And and I think if it, there's a I think there's some vitality here with Mars and Leo. So tap into it. You know, try to enjoy yourself. You know, amp you know amplify the joy factor so you can bring more of that into your life. Because I'll tell you what, you know, the powers that be or the people that are managing this matrix, the one thing they don't want people to be is happy and joyous and connected and loving. And that is the best form of rebellion. So I would say this summer, you know, stake your claim in the ground, go out, have some fun, bring some joy into your life, and really devote yourself to be a happier and more content person. Maybe a more mature version of the summer of love. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, things like, you know, I don't know, hanging out around the campfire. And, yeah. You know, roasting marshmallows and going on hikes and star watching. I mean, these are all things that are all. Oh, yeah. We're going camping. We're, we're going to do some really kind of basic stuff among the trees ourselves. So well, that sounds good. It's been a really fascinating talk, Robert. And again, anybody can find you, your work, your workshops, everything else at robertphoenix.com. So I encourage them to go there. And I have to say, the whole time we've been talking, the way your light is set up this time, when you're speaking, you're getting a, um, a lavender reflection, a violet reflection right where your eyeballs are. They oh, look right. It looks really cool. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Some people say I look like Paul Atreides when I have it. <laughs> I just have to say, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so anyway, so thanks, Robert. And we're going to catch up again um, in the autumn of 2019. Okay. And you have always a, a, always a pleasure, Regina. Thank you so much. So until next time, again, robertphoenix.com to get in touch with Robert's work or connect with him and his uh, work teaching people about astrology as well. So until uh, next time with Robert, thank you for joining us here on reginameredith.com.